All right. Last week, again, contagious faith, contagious faith. And uh, so this week we jump into the story that illustrates contagious faith. And, and it's a familiar story, but maybe you haven't thought about it in this light. As we think of Ruth and Naomi as two mothers that were given very difficult tasks. They were given a very bitter taste. Which reminds me of my grandmother at Thanksgiving time that gave me Brussels sprouts. The, the darkest day in my life was the first taste I had of Brussels sprouts, boiled, not, not fried. You can fry roaches and it'll taste good. Don't tell me Brussels sprouts taste good when they're fried. Because you can literally, like you can take a big old roach and fry it and I'm sure it'll taste good. Brussels sprouts, right? This is our image for the day and this is the lesson we're going to learn today. We're going to learn the mom's lesson about Brussels sprouts. It does teach us a spiritual lesson and something that we should learn. Uh, so we have a poem for this occasion. Don't throw out your Brussels sprout, for though it's bitter, it makes you shiver. There's a lot in there you can't live without. All right, so don't throw out your Brussels sprout. It's healthy. At least that's what they tell me. Um, according to International Taste Society, uh, there's four vegetables that they uh, have gauged on the bitterness meter and corn really doesn't even it's kind of sweet and then you get the green beans you get the kale and you're really starting to hurt yourself but look at brussels sprouts i mean it's off the charts it's over 100 percent now i did come up with that taste bud society but it's it's scientific because there's a chart all right these these brussels sprouts can be really really difficult Make a shudder. Maybe not you. Maybe not you. Um, because some people are sadomasochists and they enjoy the difficult things of life. Just putting that taste in their mouth, this bitterness. Are there things more bitter than Brussels sprouts? Yes. What? Bitter melon. Okay, so bitter melon is right up there. Right up there. Um, what's interesting here, though, is... Based on your attitude, you could be like me and Eeyore, or you could be like Tigger and enjoy it. All of us are going to have tastes that come into our lives that are circumstances that really make us shudder. Um, and perhaps you've come across one of those recently in your life, uh, maybe in your childhood, to where it's difficult to taste to this day. We find in Ruth and Naomi kind of opposite perspectives to the bitterness of the taste of life. Um, it's as opposite as Eeyore and Tigger, right? Where, where, I mean, you find, we'll find this, but what's interesting is we'll find Naomi in chapter one very bitter. But what we find here, what's really cool, is that her perspective changes to Ruth's perspective instead of Ruth's perspective on her circumstances changing to Naomi's. And that's what we're after. We're after this contagious faith that in times of spiritual famine and devastating circumstances, we can be resilient, clinging closely to the promises of God, and that that would actually spread to my family members, spread 
to my coworkers. Okay, so let's learn from Ruth here. First of all, chapter 1, and again, we're going to just kind of dip in and out of this story, but I'll read a lot of the text for the sake of ease of reading. I'll use the New Living Translation, but you can follow along in your Bible there. Um, Chapter 1, faith challenged a devastating time during a spiritual famine. You can see that in your notes there. Uh, Devastating time. This is roughly 1250 to 1050 BC, the time of the judges. If you read the book of Judges, you find this is one of the worst times in Israel's history. They've gone to bad to worst, and they're really following anyone who will do anything spiritual. And, and so you have someone like Samson, wicked man, and yet people are following him as a leader because he's able to kill people. And this is the low point in Israel's history. And, and so you kind of find this circular time of God handing Israel over to judgment, then they respond to that judgment with a little bit of faith, and then God re- gives them some blessing And then that blessing makes them turn away from God and there's this cyclical time. They turn away from God and then God sends another invading army to wake them up. And and so that's the whole cycle. It's the whole cycle of Ruth's life and we find it here. This devastating time. And look at what happens there. Verse 1 of Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel a severe famine. Again, this cyclical time. They've run away from God. God is sending something to wake them up. Not to be mean, but to wake them up spiritually. Because this is what they need. They need God. They don't need food. They need God more than they need anything. And so God sends a severe famine. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab. Instead of getting right with God, he's like, okay, I'm going to try to find somewhere where there's food. And he goes to the enemy. Taking his wife and two sons with him. This is ironic here because anybody know the name, what in Hebrew Bethlehem means? Somebody bravely shouted out. House of bread. bread. Right. There's this famine in the house of bread. It's kind of a spiritual picture of where they are. They're needing to have bread, spiritual bread, and yet they're empty. And so the house of bread has no bread. And you see their route from Bethlehem to Moab, uh, which would be an, an enemy in the book of Judges. Leave their spiritual heritage and go to a place filled with idolatry. Well, that is not the place of blessing. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies, leaves her with the two sons. These two sons marry uh, Gentile ladies, Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah and the other a woman named Ruth. Ten years into this, right, so their, their whole family is involved in all of the Moabite right, practices and they're, they're living in a foreign land. Ten years into this, the, the sons die. She's lost her husband. Now she's lost both of her, her sons. Just left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. We're left to wonder what happens when we leave God's house of bread, even during different physical times, times where we're 
<laughs> tempted to trust our own strength and think, well, this is my best way to go to Moab. And, and God, we don't know, we're not left with that knowledge, but perhaps uh, the Lord is sending further judgment upon them for leaving God's inheritance. They've left their inheritance, their spiritual inheritance, in order to make ends meet. But we understand the difficulty. We understand the pressure. And now we understand a devastating time. This is a bitter cry. Naomi heard in Moab, after a little bit of time, she hears that there's bread. The Lord blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi left her daughters-in-law and got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. The word return in the Hebrew is the same word for repent. So there's maybe some sense of not just well, I want to go back to get stuff for myself, but perhaps there is a spiritual sense in which she's repenting. It does seem that way as she prays for her daughters. Her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living. She took the road that would lead them back to Judah. On the way, Naomi said to her two daughters, don't go back with me. May the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with security of another marriage. And she kissed them goodbye and broke down and wept. All right, so she says, Naomi says, listen, don't go with me. You stay here. Find other husbands in your own land. And they say, no, we will not do that. And they weep and they cry. Well, Naomi presses on them to leave and Orpah leaves. Not Oprah, Orpah. Orpah leaves, kisses her mother-in-law, says goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. And so we have Ruth's response here, faith in following God. What an amazing response. It's beautiful, right? We say this in wedding ceremonies now. Because verse 14, they lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. That's that word in Genesis where the husband and wife leave their parents home and they become one flesh they cling to one another she's clinging to this familial obligation to her mother-in-law and she says don't ask me to go wherever you go i will go where you live i will live your people will be my people your god will be my god she is a follower of yahweh she has identified with herself with Uh, with Jesus in that sense. She's a follower of God, the one true God, and she says, your God will be my God until I die, and may the Lord, right? So she is holding herself accountable to the Lord. May the Lord punish me if nothing but death leaves you and me. What an amazing response of faith. She doesn't have all of the scriptures. She has uh, this husband from 10 years before and somehow he must have passed along enough of the faith to her where she is truly a committed follower of Yahweh and she wants to stay with Naomi what an amazing response of faith she has no I mean this is not a (laughs) this is not a helpful condition She has no promise of financial well-being, no promise of security. She's actually throwing her lot in uh, with what would be a poor financial decision. 
And so we see the exact opposite of Naomi, who has made a good financial decision that's bad for her faith. We have Ruth making a poor financial decision that's good for her faith. And God blesses her for it. What is Naomi's response? What a contrast. What a contrast. Ruth's response is faith in following God. Naomi's response is bitterness in blaming God. She tastes the bitter fruit of life, the negative circumstances, and, and she is bitter. She is bitter. Now, before we heap too much scorn on Naomi, I mean, put yourself in her shoes. Right? She just followed her husband to Moab. That wasn't necessarily her choice. And her husband dies. Both of her sons have died. In that culture, she has lost all of her livelihood. She knows she's going to live the rest of her life as a beggar. He is facing insurmountable circumstances. Just put yourself in a, the financial pressure of that as you're nearing the retirement age of your life. And so we understand her heart is just bitter. And she says it that way. She hasn't left God. She says, God has done this to me. She's, no, she's not an atheist. She is blaming God. And so she comes back to Bethlehem and she says, don't, don't count, don't call me Naomi. Right? Earlier on she says, this thing, things are far more bitter for me than for you. The Lord himself has raised his fist against me. God has struck me. This is bitter. And then she comes and she says, No longer call me Naomi. Pleasant. The idea of pleasant in the Hebrew. Kind. Instead, call me Mara. I have tasted bitterness and I want you to call my name bitter. Just call me bitterness. For the Almighty has made my life very bitter. She is bitter. No hiding it. There's no way around it. Naomi is bitter. Life has given her bitter circumstances. Instead of responding in faith, she has responded in bitterness. I went away full. The Lord has brought me home empty. Don't call me Naomi pleasant. When God has caused me to suffer, the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me. And so she goes around calling herself Mara. Now, the author doesn't give her that name the rest of the book, and I like that. Instead, continues to call her Naomi. So we find Ruth, Gentile, and yet unbelievable faith fixed on God. Naomi, Jewish, raised with the understanding of Yahweh, and yet bitter against God. Quite a lesson for us. Quite a lesson for us. Well, chapter 2 brings this story further. And I think we we find some positive news here. Uh, Faith's glimmer. A possible hope. uh, Following a spiritual return. So perhaps there's this repentance. And then there's this spiritual heart that's coming back to God perhaps. And even though she's blaming God. I don't like what she says about uh, Naomi, right? She's, uh, Naomi says, uh, call me Mara the Lord. I went way full, and now I have nothing. 
right? And then here's Ruth in the background. Wait, well, who am I? I've left everything. You've left, I have nothing? She has a daughter-in-law that loves her, okay? And, and that's the key. That's going to be the key. So we have a, a possible hope following a spiritual return. Uh, chapter 2 is precious, right? Uh, we, I, I'm going to read a few of these verses. Um, now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz. Oh boy, okay, we got some romantic interest here. He was a relative of Naomi, wealthy, influential man in the house of bread. One day Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, just perchance, let me go out to a harvest field to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind, anyone who's kind enough to let me do it. All right, daughter, go. That's all Naomi says. Well, whose field is she going to go to? Well, she's going to go to Boaz's field. While she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. And they said, the Lord bless you. Harvesters replied. Then Boaz asked the foreman, who is that young woman over there? Who, Who does she belong to? And the foreman said, she is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She's been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. Okay, so we find here a uh, Ruth's response, faithful serving with purpose. She doesn't know what her future is going to be. But she's like, okay, we got to eat. This society allows the beggars to go and reap at the corners of the field and get a little bit of gleaning. So we go from Brussels sprouts to wheat. There's a little bit of wheat there. And so God, by chance, has on purpose led her to go to the field of Boaz. And Boaz, uh, with some purpose, has left some field, some, some uh, grain for her. Um, and, and he does that. Boaz says, hey, look, you guys leave, leave some behind on purpose so that she can find more grain than she would find if you weren't leaving that for her. And so Boaz shows kindness to her. And look at Naomi's response. This is where we see a little bit of this glimmer of hope. And Ruth, Ruth's faith and faithfulness starts to wear off on her mother-in-law. Naomi says, good. Do as he said, my daughter. Stay with his young women right through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in other fields, but you'll be safe with him. This word, good, is a synonym to Naomi's name. We get back to her saying, good, pleasant. This is, this is good. What's going on here? Yay in the Hebrew. No, it's not that. But she's, she's getting some hope here. Chapter 3. Uh, chapter 3, this bold step in a parental arrangement. I don't know if you've read chapter 3. It's a little odd in our culture. Uh, one, day, Omi, one day Naomi said to Ruth, My daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours. He's very kind by letting you gather grain with young women. Tonight he'll be winnowing barley at the threshing floor, so it's the next season, so this has happened for months. Do as I tell you. Take a bath, put on perfume, dress in your nicest clothes, go to the threshing floor, 
Don't let Boaz see you until he's finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down. Go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. Okay. Just put yourself in those shoes. Right? Uh, again, this is the time of the judges. Morality is out the window. Uh, now, Boaz does seem to have a very upstanding character as far as his moral reputation. To this point, Ruth does as well. But she's really putting herself out there. Um, what would happen here is that uh, this is a time of harvest. And you can imagine Boaz is a wealthy landowner. He has people working for him to do the whole harvest. And they take months worth of income and just leave it in what they call the, the uh, winnowing area. right? And so what would happen is they, they bring to this one area... And you throw the grain in the air, and the wind catches the chaff and sends it away, and the good grain falls to the ground, and they collect the good grain. Well, there's a whole setup for that. It could be actually up, raised up high, so the wind is blowing better. Um, either way, all of his money is sitting there. So he's going to sleep with it. <laughs> he's going to guard it with his life. And so it says that he comes to the head of that area, and he's laying down there, and Ruth knows this, Boaz knows this, but everybody else knows this, and Naomi knows this. And so she says, listen, tonight, go and uncover his feet. Well, she's putting herself out there on several occasions. First of all, she could, be, she could be accused of immorality by Boaz. Secondly, he could take advantage of her. It's at night, he's wealthy, it's his word against hers. She has to trust him. This is really a difficult thing for Ruth to do. And so how would Ruth respond? Well, how would you respond? Well, she responds in obeying her mom-in-law. Okay, you know the culture. You know what's going on. I'll do everything you say. Ruth replied. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instruction of her mother-in-law. I am your servant, Ruth, she replied. She wakes him up. He's, he's startled, as you can imagine. Realizes there's a lady there. She has perfume. And so he knows this is a lady, not someone trying to steal his grain. Lying at his feet in a, actually a place of submission. Um, and she says this. It's beautiful. She says, uh, verse 9, Ruth 3. I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. And so this is the image there. The image is she's cold. She's neglected because of her family. She has no provision. She has no way to provide uh, for herself or for her mother-in-law. So she's asking him to bring her into his household. Not necessarily even in a romantic way. She's just saying, please take care of me. You showed so much kindness to me. Please take care of me. How is Boaz going to respond? Anger? Trying to steal my inheritance? A stingy old man? Well, you guys know. How does he respond? Yes! <laughs> he's so excited. All right. He wouldn't ask her because he's older than her. He would not impose his will on her because of her position. 
The Lord bless you, my daughter. Verse 10 of Ruth 3, Boaz exclaimed, You're showing even more family loyalty now than when you did before. If you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor, don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary, for everyone in town knows you are a virtuous woman. And so we have this young couple uh, staying virtuous, uh, leaving. Uh, There is not immorality here. Uh, It's a picture of asking for him to take care of her, and he is saying yes. Uh, They do not know each other in that way. And so he takes care of her, measures six scoops of barley into her cloak, places on her back, and she returns to town. Now, that's Ruth's response is obedience. What's Naomi's response? This time we go from maybe to yay. She's actually believing again. Ruth's response is obedience. Naomi's response is faith. Look at verse 18 of Ruth chapter 3. Naomi said to her, Just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. The man won't rest until he has settled things today. Well, where did that come from? Mother-in-law finally is believing. She's now filled with faith. Earlier, God's hand is against us. There's no hope. Now, hey, listen, it's going to be taken care of today. And so the beautiful thing here is we find that Ruth's faith in God now has, re- has reciprocated to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and Naomi is full of faith. And then the last chapter, we find this beautiful gospel heritage for a Gentile widow. Um, Boaz went to town, verse 1 of Ruth 4, Boaz went to town, there's I'm going to read a little bit of text here. Went to town gate and took a seat there. Just then the family redeemer he had mentioned came by. So Boaz called him. Come over here. Sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. They sat down together. Boaz called ten leaders from the town as witnesses and said, I want to be a family redeemer. I want to take that which Elimelech had. Take care of this family. Well, that's property, and so this family member says, okay, I I think actually, uh, even though you could take it, I'm a closer family member, so I will take it. The man replied, I'll redeem it. And if you're reading and you're following along, your heart sinks. Wait a second, that's not the way it was supposed to go. Boaz was supposed to get Ruth. This guy says, okay, I'll take Elimelech's property, right? My inheritance, now my inheritance is larger to pass on to my children, And Boaz says, of course, uh, if you have the land from Naomi, you also need to marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her household's name and keep the land in the family. The guy's like, oh, wait, I can't get the land for my own name? And so he says, ah, you get it. You buy the land. Verse 8 of Ruth 4. So Boaz took Ruth into his home. And she became his wife. Um, When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord, who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law, who loves you, and has been better than you to you than seven sons. 
a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so we find uh, Ruth's response is thanksgiving, thankful for the Lord's provision. But Naomi's response here is praise. There's this beautiful hymn of praise that ends this story. The Lord who was, in one sense, uh, his name was not defended, uh, was taken advantage of. Now his name is praised because the circumstances have changed. The Lord has provided a kinsman redeemer in Boaz for Ruth and the provision of a child for a grandchild for Naomi. So Ruth's response is thanksgiving. Naomi's response is rejoicing. But what's the beautiful thing about the whole book is the last word of Ruth 4. Right? If you have your Bible, uh, look at the last, the last word of the book and we find the word David. The word David. Uh, not, only, uh, not only is Ruth given a son, Ruth becomes one of the only Gentiles in the Messianic line from which we find Jesus. And so she not only receives a redeemer in Boaz, she refines uh, in, in all of us, we find a redeemer in Jesus. So let's look at a few application points here and we'll be done. First of all, don't give up hope. God's ways, um, God's ways are usually not our ways, right? Don't give up hope. God's ways are usually not our ways. If we were to plan out our own way, it would not entail famines. It would not entail Moab. It would not entail death. It definitely would not entail Brussels sprouts, right? But sometimes God wants us to eat Brussels sprouts because it's best for us. It makes us stronger. And so all of us will face difficult times. All of us will face difficult times. God's plans bring us to the valleys. If we wrote our own story, we would not write any of these negative effects, negative circumstances. But God is the one writing our story. And he is walking with us through those trials. Isaiah 55, 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so, fact number two, because of this, because God's ways are better than our ways, um, don't get bitter in those valleys. God's ways often lead through these valleys, so recognize that and don't, let, don't lose heart. So, swallow it. Recognize, God, I don't understand why I'm here. I don't understand why I'm walking the rocky crag. I don't understand why I'm going through the valley of the shadow of death. But I know that you're with me. Your rotted staff is guiding me. So trust in the Lord in that difficulty, in that trial. Don't get bitter. And it's really the difference between Ruth and Naomi. Both of them had the same circumstances. One responded in faith, in the promises of God, the character of God. The other one got bitter. Let me encourage you to look in faith and not in bitterness. And then thirdly, follow Ruth's example. Adopt courageous faith. Follow God with all your heart. Follow God consistently. 
So that others may see this spirit-filled faith in your life. And that spills over to the Naomi's around you. Again, chapter 1, Naomi is changing her name from pleasant to bitter. God has struck me. Naomi chapter 2, she's like, oh, this is good. Naomi chapter 3, she's like planning. She is the, you know, there's arranged marriages in that day. So she's, she's planning the arranged marriage by almost subterfuge. In chapter 4, she's praising. That is what God does with our courageous faith. So continue to live a life of courageous faith. Even those around you um, can't understand it. Continue to face it positively. Positively. Through God's power, through His Spirit. And then, fourthly, praise God for His provision and His plan. As you wait under the difficulty, right? it may be to death, but as He brings you out, it can give you more reason to praise And so give glory to him. And perhaps some of you have gone through that even this week, a time of difficulty. Well, take some time in the fellowship meal and bless the Lord. Bless the Lord uh, with those around you. Say, this is how God has given me a house of bread this week. This is my Bethlehem. Uh, This is my Ruth moment. The Lord has provided this. And then lastly here, praise God for his redemption. I think this is the big point of the book. The big point of the book is that it ends in redemption. Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David the king. That's Matthew chapter 1. And so Ruth herself finds, we read about her every year as we read the Christmas story. Jesse was the father of David the king. Jacob was the father of Joseph. Verse 16 of Matthew 1. Husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. And so amazing fact, this lady, this Moabite lady, faithful to God, becomes great, 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 great grandmother to Messiah, to the true Redeemer. And this is what we really need to keep our eyes on because sometimes in this life you do not have Boaz. Because sometimes in this life, and of course Ruth dies, Naomi dies, all of them continue to die. All of us will eventually face the same circumstances that bring us to the brink and cross us over Jordan. And so our hope can't be in the circumstances. Ruth was trusting God even in the difficulty. And you and I need to be trusting God even in the difficulty. Because we know that we have a Redeemer that is not Boaz. We have a Redeemer that is Jesus. A Redeemer that gives us much greater blessing. An eternal eternal redemption. Our course is reversed not just in this life, but unto eternity. Eternal provision. Eternal Bethlehem. Eternal redemption because of Christ. And so the greatest praise is that our fortune has been reversed, not just in this life, but forever. And so in the gospel, all of us can claim Ruth's blessing, that we have a Redeemer. There is a Redeemer. We're going to sing that in a moment. Do you have a Redeemer? It's not Boaz. If your Redeemer and your hope isn't a husband, I'm sorry. No husband can bring that. 
or in a spouse. No spouse can bring that. Only Jesus can be our eternal provider. And so this is the beauty of this story. Young Joanna Dobshiner was 19 when she boarded the train from Holland to London where she hoped to meet her uncle. Um, She had already in her brief life faced more than Ruth and Naomi put together. Uh, She watched her family taken from the streets uh, where she grew up. She had just been separated from them for a little bit and she watched her family be taken by Nazi soldiers loaded on a train uh, to the prison camp to their death. She dodged Nazi soldiers from attic to attic in the underground, waiting for release, not knowing where her next meal would come from. By 19, World War II was over, and she's leaving Holland for London for the last time. And not for the last time, she goes back and visits, but at that point. And she goes back and she thinks of all of those difficulties, all of the bitterness of life. I wanted to read her testimony here. She ends this book, Selected to Live. She says, I reflected on those years gone by. It was one long, severe thunderstorm, frightening and very dangerous at times. The rumbling thunder of threat and rumor was heard continually. Then the crashing thuds coming nearer and nearer. Would the lightning strike this night? The flashes hit right, left, center, then suddenly hit us as well, burning all that was near and dear. Still, the storm continued, frightening, rumbling, striking all over this and other continents. But even thunderstorms hitting continents, nations, countries, cities, villages, and homes must pass. Of course, they leave devastation, destruction, and death. And this is where we all need to go with these times of bitterness in our lives, where she goes, A thunderstorm raged when the king of this universe experienced the act of dying for us. Whenever electric storms hit your home or family life, look at the storm which shook Calvary. Allow it to be the yardstick for the circumstances confronting your storm. The sky will clear. You will experience the deathly silence of loneliness, of despair, hopelessness, indifference to continuing in this struggle for life. And then, after that silence, we shall come to see colors again. A rainbow through the rain. It beckons us to continue to lift up our heads To look at the miracle of nature, the promise of Almighty God. Presently the sun will shine again for you too. Calvary, storm, rainbow, and then brilliant sunshine. Resurrection. Believe it. Look for it. Lift up your heart. Lift it up away from the base and destructive rumbling of doubt and fear. Hold up your heart, mind, emotions, head and eyes. Up, up. There you will detect colors again. Brilliance, promises with certainty of fulfillment. While the wounds inflicted by the lightning still hurt and burn and will leave their scars forever. Your general health 
will be bathed by the warmth and radiation of God's Son of Love. You will tan and recover stronger to determine your attitude for future storms. You too will join the millions who quietly, humbly, but very sincerely dare to utter. We know that all things work together for good. To those that love God and are called according to his purpose. For God did not withhold his own son from facing the bitterest taste of death that we might have eternal life. When bitter tastes recoil our face, when life's fierce race becomes more grueling still, then heaven beckons our eyes' attention to Calvary's hill. For there we know our Savior drank wrathful herbs most bitter, nailed sin to his cross's doorpost. Father, Son has borne the most that you and I may feast above. Eternal banquet, eternal love. Let's pray. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Let me encourage you to turn and trust to Jesus, our Redeemer. And perhaps life has brought you bitter herbs. Know that he tastes far more bitter to take our sin debt upon himself. Respond with Ruth in faith to this loving, compassionate God. An example of faith. We'll pray in faith to the Lord, acknowledging him. If you'd like to pray with someone, I'll be in the back lobby and happy to pray with you in a moment. We'll have a...